Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio I know we had some words last time But that was so long ago I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders Network Featuring tales to terrify And far-fetched fables Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 598. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Did you miss us? Yes. Back after two weeks, happy holidays to Sorrento, which was absolutely gorgeous, mind you. Just the scenery and the views were just, wow. If you haven't seen like pictures along the Malfi coast, man, it gets you there. It gets you right in your heart. So we are back this month. And because we took two weeks off there, Mr. J.J. Campanella missed his slot. So hopefully, you know, if all things is well, we'll have two for the price of one this month of Mr. J.J. Campanella. Because we've got his July little section coming up today. So I'll tell you what is coming in today's show. We have A Once Held Truth of a Different Sword by Andrew Wilmot, which is an original to Starship Sova. Then we have, like I say, Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news for July slash August. That's all coming into this show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Just a little heads up before we, we kind of kick off. Guess what? The village has got my little village. If you, if you don't know, I live on the kind of northeast coast, right next to the sea, right up there on the northeast of England on the coastline. And our little village has just getting a Turkish barbers. Now, I'm not sure, like, around the world if Turkish barbers are kicking off, but in England, there certainly are. Every high street's got one. And it's just lovely. And I've just been there for a little shave. And that's it from now on. I'm not bothering shaving. I always like to have... (laughs) 
race is good. Nice bit of stubble. And it's just like a hassle to kind of keep it under control normally. You know what I mean? Your hair's all over the sink and everything, man. So that's it now. I'm just popping into the village for a Turkish every now and again. Right then. No other male grooming sessions on this podcast. We'll jump into the main fiction. Like I say, A Once Held Truth of a Different Sword by Andrew Wilmot. Andrew Wilmot is an award-winning writer and editor based out of Toronto, Ontario. He is the co-publisher and co-EIC of the online magazine Anatheme. Specs from the margins. Books he's worked on have themselves taken home multiple awards from the Sunburst Awards, the Eisenhower, Eisenhower, Eisner Awards and the Shirley Jackson Awards. His first novel, The Death Scene Artist, was released in the fall of 2018 from Book, Rick, Book Rider Books, sorry, an imprint of Walscott and Wim. And you can find him online. There's a couple of links there to Andrew. This story is narrated by Margaret Essex. Margaret lives the good life on a small piece of rural New South Wales, Australia, with an amazing man, a couple of pets, and all the usual biting, stinging critters that make great horror stories for our visitors and several rambushkus wombats. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... A Once Held Truth of a Different Sort by Andrew Wilmot The darkness is thick and has snared her. Araxia thinks to herself, it's like being submerged in digestive acids. Then they remove the blinders and slowly her vision reconstitutes itself. She glances up then, sees the ceiling of the tunnel they're in, constructed atop the gargantuan ivory bones of a godspawn, its cartilage travelling for miles in either direction, and realises, uncomfortably, the astuteness of her assumption. It's as if Tamira has swallowed her whole, as if the planet has taken her as it had every member of her bloodline, and she thinks how fucking perfect this all is. Poetry in service of total and abject destruction. Where... Why am I... She speaks, and her voice trembles, as if a limb atrophied. You are with us again, yes? A voice drowning in informational debris, like the open wound of an orchestra, a song in the key of slashed wrists. The wraith, Lixander, steps out from the shadows, materialising in front of her. As the last bits of Araxia's vision work to resolve the distortion, it looks for a moment as if the Zeta demon has stepped out of a fissure. They stop in front of Araxia. Their body resembles a pewter monolith cracked at the limbs, given shape, life, The bloodless Tamiran beneath the carapace-like armour was a person, once, with organs and tissues of their very own, though they had long ago jettisoned such trivialities. Now they are hard and scaled, akin to a bipedal stone serpent, the god-spawn of old. Servants of the vast, Araxia thinks, still groggy, seeing four similarly shaped shadows moving about behind Lixander. 
cowards, traitors, who'd once donned the scarlet of her family's crest, only to later betray all they had believed, all for which they had fought and died, and had been resurrected for, only to die again, to betray the whole of Tamira by the light, and for nothing but their conspiracies. They lost their wings, their freedom, to an idea little more than a viral infection. However, even a cough unchecked can fell the greatest of warriors, and the simplest of ideas, that your faith is not the shield you imagined it to be, can be made virulent, anathema to your continued existence. Araxia tries to move, but can't. Her hands are bound at her back with coarse wire she feels shredding the skin of her wrists with every movement, no matter how minor. The metal chair beneath her is cold and damp, and she feels it irritating her thighs through her torn clothing. She pictures red welts appearing among the brown of her skin the longer she sits there. Water drips down from above, gentle rain off the leviathan's bones, each the girth of an old-growth tree, just like those of the guardian's forests that grows, that grew, behind the palace. Lixander tracks her gaze skyward. Impressive, isn't it? They say, admiring the creature's remains. A godspawn itself, one of who knows how many. Do you know, we've been digging down here for months now, and we still haven't found either end. It just goes on and on for miles. They put a hand to one of the oversized vertebrae, jutting out from the cavern wall, and exhale. I wonder what glories our teams on the underside of Tamira by the dark will uncover. Alexander, what are you... Araxia searches her memory to try and recall how she got there and... Praxis, where is she? It floods back in an instant. Her twentieth birthday party. Her mother beaming at her from across the dining hall. That last simple moment between them, before everything went to hell. The memories cycle through her mind without sound, a mere parade of destruction as the walls of the dining hall were blown out, as her mother and sisters and brothers, all older, were decimated, vaporized before anyone knew what was happening. A single blast from an atomizer, like a small star, erupted and collapsed onto itself in just seconds obliterating a twenty-metre radius and all those unfortunate to have been caught within. It had happened so quickly that no one even thought to respond, to shout or cry or scream. No one, that is, but Praxis, her steel maiden, who'd been by Araxia's side since she was a small child and had, in the fires of instinct, taken her by the arm and launched the both of them to the far side of the room as the fighting started in their wake. 
They were forced to battle their way through a stream of servants of the vast, attempting to block off the south exit of the palace. Araxia remembers they made it as far as the perimeter gate when a concussion blast punched a hole in the ground ahead of them. Praxis had not had time to unfurl her wings fastened to her back as part of her armor, and they fell headlong into the crater. Araxia recalls looking up then at the Zona, its terrible, unlidded eyes staring down upon them before Lixander's face appeared above her, blotting out the singularity. As if by request, Lixander snaps their fingers, and two of the shadows at their back disappear down into the Leviathan's undercarriage, only to return a moment later, dragging the form of Praxis between them. They deposit the lifeless body at Lixander's feet, while the Zeta demon is busy cycling data packs of the dead through their cortical, the insertion point, a narrow slit at the side of their head. Their eyes roll back in their skull as the information waterfalls through their brain, compiling and reconstituting into something new, something wild and confined into too small a space. Lixander inhales deeply as the stolen knowledge sorts itself into their being. Then they flash a smile of dangerous ambition and reach down and tear the furled wings off Praxis's back with their bare hands. These should have been mine. They sneer at the corpse of Araxia's protector. With wings in hand, they watch as Praxis's armour dissolves into pieces around the hole where the wings had been, the linchpin that held everything else together. You were never good enough for these. You didn't deserve them. Praxis. Araxia glances up, staring at her captor through tear-stained eyes. Alexander, I don't know what they promised you, but I swear on the lives of my brethren. Your brethren? They spit. The family and everything they stood for are ash. Your Highness. The tree is split and I am the axe. I will ensure nothing of your blood ever takes seed again. They pace in front of Araxia, the body of Praxis, where Lixander had abandoned it, as if mere litter. I knew the arrogance of your parents and siblings, but you, Araxia, I remember you not being so oblivious. You know exactly what it is that the vast have promised. Alexander. You would jeopardize their truth. And for what? Your legacy? I don't. Look around you. They extend their arms, as if to touch the leviathan's carcass, 
but cannot come close to reaching either side. Their bones encircle the entirety of Tamira. They protect us in ways your family never did and never could. Araxia knows of what Lysander speaks. The legend of the Godspawn, who, while travelling through space millennia ago, became caught in the pull of the Zona, the bright black heart at the centre of Vol. To keep from being devoured by the singularity, the Godspawn, unfathomably large leviathans each, located a nearby rock, an asteroid in the slow, withering process of being torn asunder by the Zona, and latch themselves to it like parasites to a host. Doing so, anchored the Godspawn safely out of Zona's pull, and simultaneously prevented the rock that would be Tamira from being demolished by gravitational forces beyond its control. As the Godspawn remained fastened to Tamira, as they aged and passed into death, their remnants helped give the rock life. This is the story the Vast would have everyone believe. The radical sect, an offshoot of Tamira orthodoxy, had glommed onto the idea that the Leviathans had been forgotten, that they had been unfairly relegated to myth, a transgression for which Araxia's royal bloodline and their pursuit of science and technology was to blame. But this was not the whole of it. Alexander, I know what you think you're doing, but it's not right. You've no idea what it will do to people, to your people, the ones you once protected with everything you had. Don't speak to me of protection. As they speak, a low tremor rattles the cavern. Araxia glances up nervously as dirt rains from between the bones of the godspawn. Lysander stares only at her. Your family told. They swore for generations that they would protect us. But have you stopped the quakes? Have you quelled the shatterings that have pulled islands of our world into the sky? No, but... Families, structures, entire cities lifted from the ground and brought closer to the Zona, as if unholy gifts for the God-Devourer. And your family's response is... What? To follow them into oblivion. They scoff menacingly. Araxia turns her head at the notion. She's heard an invective like this before, from the Arbiter of the Vast, a figurehead all had heard of, but who remained cloaked in perpetual shadow. None who knew would dare tell of their true identity. But their arrival in Tamira by the light a year earlier marked the start of a months-long campaign against the leadership of Tamira, against Araxia's family, in which they claimed, in the royal family's effort to reach the stars, to explore the far reaches of space, that they were ignoring the very real crisis threatening the planet's continued survival. The royal family was abandoning them, the Arbiter threatened, 
In their foolish pursuit of science, they had abandoned their faith, pushing the godspawn that so long ago had not only saved their home, but given them life into myth. It was this arrogance, this desire to foster technology and advancements, that would allow them to leave the surface of their dying world, that according to the vast and their arbiter, was the root of Tamira's current, highly destructive affliction. Lexander grips Araxia by the chin, forces her to stare into their eyes, wide, frazzled with knowledge, fear, rage. She thinks, staring into Lexander's star-like irises, she can see the data sluicing through their brain, reams of it, entire lives worth, confiscated from the bodies of their victims. They hadn't had the chance to take her parents' data packs, though, had they? Had they not been so quick in vaporising her family, leaving little to sift through but ash and dust, they might realise the extent of their stupidity. Might. If she had one herself, a data pack, that is, she'd offer it to Lixander, to possibly still their aggression and fill in the gaps between their assumptions, whatever the ramifications to her mind. But Araxia's mother had been adamant. No royal children would undergo said procedure until their ascendancy. It was their right, her mother had stressed to their father. They will have the burden of our knowledge and the knowledge of generations past soon enough. Let them have their youth free of such weight. The godspawn will not be ignored. Lixander suddenly clutches Araxia's face, squeezing both sides between their thumb and index finger, even as she struggles to try and free herself. We will shuffle the earth from their bones until all of Tamira, light and dark, Seize for themselves the truth of our survival. Right then, another tremor rocks the cavern. The shadows behind Lixander regard their surroundings with concern. From what sounds like miles away, a rumbling like an avalanche in reverse. Another mountain of land separating from the hole, being yanked clear of Tamira by the impressive might of the Zona, that has threatened their existence since before even the first Tamiram was born. Araxia remembers clearly the first time when she was just a child that she saw a mountain with parts of a city atop it, buildings cleaved in two as if by a celestial blade, suddenly lift clear of the planet and rise into the upper atmosphere. Mother, why is this happening? she'd asked. Araxia's mother, Allegius, a tall, regal woman of amber and cut glass, who seldom spoke, even to her own kin, replied, Ours is a fragile world, little Zia. The Zona has spared us these many years, but its mercy is conditional. On what? Its hunger. But the godspawn, won't they keep us safe? Her mother ran through Araxia's hair, a hand heavy with large obsidian rings. I'm sure they will try. 
But there's only so much even they can do. There's only so much any could do in the face of such destruction. Araxia had watched as the mountain ascended into a loose orbit around the planet. She knew from her teachers and her parents that the further one got from Tamira and the closer to the Zona, the slower life and time itself moved. She wondered if those atop the mountains that floated above them, if they had survived the ascent, were already on a timeline separate from the rest of them, if their lives had been pulled entirely from Tamira's influence. Mother, what is it? What is the Zona? It is a maelstrom, Zia. It's a god, and will destroy us as easily as we were created. Of gods and godspawn, such is their existence. Now, Lixander and the rest of the vast were determined to unearth the bones of the past, to reveal Tamira's core as the grave of mass entities they'd always been told it was, through myth and legend and faith, though most had never and would never see the truth for themselves. Araxia knows, however, that Godspawn or no, their protection is still and would always be temporary. It is as her mothers and teachers had instructed. The Leviathans were not an ordained armistice between the planet and its will-be destroyer, rather a decision made in desperation. Theirs was an existence based on an ancient species' abject fear of annihilation. And fear is but a temporary solve. Soon, as dictated by tremors increasing in frequency and intensity, and by a sky quickly overwhelmed by islands and small continents that threaten to darken what little remains of their capital's namesake luminosity, their planet and everything on it will be destroyed. Alexander, Araxia asks once the shaking stops. Why did you bring me here? What do you want from me? To see, they say, as the last in your line, I want you to bear witness. To what? Change, real change, our past paid tribute once more. And with that, another shake, but different, substantial, and growing. The cavern around them continues to rumble, and Araxia looks up, expecting the earth above her to lift clear of the world, not to fall inward, covering her and Lixandra in a shower of dirt and ground, while the other shadows quickly scamper clear. She drops her face to protect her eyes, catching final sight of Praxis's body, before her former guardian is covered completely, the leviathan's bones, an archway over her sudden, makeshift grave. She opens her eyes again, to Lixander standing directly in front of her, staring up at the shock of daylight streaming through the leviathan's massive bones. Above, the sounds of chaos and construction, 
as servants of the vast furiously work to unearth the evidence of the godspawn's existence, and those citizens in nearby towers looking down on them, seeing for the first time the truth of their scriptures, the truth that can be seen. They will see the massive symbols of their immense, nearly impossible to comprehend saviors, but only as they want to see them. Her family wanted to reach for the stars. It was their destiny. Her parents had claimed. It was how they would survive the inevitable crush of the zona, whose appetite was never and would never be satiated, just postponed by leaving their planet behind, by finding a new home, out there, among the vol, or perhaps in another system altogether, far beyond their current awareness, a discovery yet made. But no, commanded the arbiter and his servants, to leave the planet. Would mean their eradication, for only the godspawn could quell the hungry god above. Only in reverence could they be saved. Araxia notices then that Lysander is still holding Praxis's wing pack in one hand. Then, with the other hand, Lysander lifts Araxia from her seat, pulling her bound arms up over the end of the chair, and forces her to stand and face the light through the bones. The tall city beyond, and beyond even that, the floating debris of their fractured world. Look at it, they say, the zona visible between bone slats, as if it is caged, or as if they are. Look and laugh at the appetite too meagre to be our end. A shudder. And another shifting and splitting of the world, and a section of land just west of the hole created by the vast starts to rise into the sky. The force of the tremor is such that Lysander loses their footing. The Zeta demon lets go of Araxia, who, stumbling, manages to turn and face her captor. She lifts her feet through the cord binding her wrists together, and hooks it over the edge of Lysander's chestpiece. The sharp carapace tears through the cord, and she reaches for the wings in Lysander's hand. They refuse to let go until another tremor forces them, and Araxia is able to wrestle free the armor pack. Wait! Lysander shouts. The shadows behind them fighting to regain their footing. Araxia doesn't waste any time. She slips the wing pack onto her back, where they fasten in place. Needle-like tendrils automatically extruding from the pack to her skin, creating a symbiotic link. She thinks, and the scarlet army of her family's crest materializes across her body and face, a multi-hexagonal prism that rainbows for a few seconds before solidifying. Another thought, and the wings, wide, taloned apparatuses of metal and energy, unfurl, reaching close to the edges of the Leviathan's remains. But still not close enough to touch. Araxia watches as Lysander stands back up. There is enough space between them that she will be able to achieve flight before they come within a meter of them. You can't. You have to die if we are to be saved. 
The citizens of Tamira need to know they're safe from you, from your family's lies. The slowly rising landmass above crosses the Zona's field of vision, hiding the fire ring singularity from sight and casting their city into the same disconcerting end times darkness as its twin to the underside of the world. All that knowledge you've stolen, she says, staring down at her would-be eliminator. And you still don't have a clue. We're doomed, Lixander. We have been from the start. My family revered the godspawn for what they are, but knew full well the limits of their benevolence. The Zona will devour us, and all of Tamira too. And there's not a thing we can do to stop it. She glances at the Leviathan's enormous bones, its scope too immense for her to comprehend. They seem impossibly smooth and void of cracks and imperfections. It is as if the world had swallowed them whole. We might have escaped, though. If not for you, we might have had a chance. And she sees her mother. Her siblings, Praxis, all dead. Once upon a time. No, don't! Araxia doesn't want to hear Alexander's plea. Using Praxis's wings, she launches up through the hole in the ground, between the Leviathan's bones, and continues skyward. Looking down, she sees the Zeta demon trapped in the hole they created. "'surrounded by the remains of blind ambition, "'theirs and their leaders. "'Around her, Tamira by the light appears in greater chaos than she'd anticipated, "'along with the recent mountains of earth "'and skyscrapers that have been elevated now kilometres into the air. "'The rest of the city resembles a battlefield frozen in time, "'with shards of earth, buildings, people hovering in place.' slowly lifting from their grounded confines in defiance of what they knew of gravity, of another once-held truth of a different sort, now cast into doubt, darkness. Continuing to rise, Araxia looks off to the royal palace, her home, at the other side of the light, and sees that it is in ruins. The nearby aeronautical research facility has also been destroyed. The vast had been busy in the time since she'd been taken beneath the surface. Whatever hope they'd had of escaping Tamira and continuing on to another rock out there among the stars had been obliterated. Maybe it wouldn't have mattered, she thinks to herself. Maybe the Zona's hunger would eventually grow so large that it absorbed the entire Vol system and all dwelling within. If, in fact, anyone or anything did dwell on any of the rocks spread further out around the Black Death at the centre of things. It is then, while contemplating their fates, that Araxia notices she is no longer in control of her ascent. She looks around and sees gravity turned in reverse, and she along with it. She floats near the great mountain that had lifted off only a short time earlier, 
and recognises the frightened faces dotting the windows of buildings rising into the atmosphere as her own. She would not have survived the ascent thus far were it not for her armour, a final gift from her guardian. Those she spies in the buildings do not have long, lacking even her meagre protection. And as she clears the mass of earth and the towers become less dense, she sees once more the god of their demise, the Zona. It's accretion disk, a wreath of fire and absolute destruction, a frame bordering a portrait of great nothingness. Araxia glances down then and notices something new, something she'd not imagined she would ever see. The history of their planet, drawn with total clarity. Beyond the cities and streets and structures and systems they'd built for themselves, Tamira, light and dark, was a rock suited into being the skeletal remains of the many godspawn who'd fastened themselves to the planet, once a mere asteroid, are now visible in their entirety, as the ridges and mountain ranges and canyons of their world, obvious from this height as the stitching around a wound. Put another way, they resemble the myriad branches of a tree, its many offshoots crisscrossing one another, to the point of obfuscation. Her mother once told her of the myth of the Yggdrasil, a great tree said to give life in perpetuity. It is said that the Yggdrasil grew from the brain of the greatest of the godspawn, and from its branches the first Tamiran life was born, a member of her family, her royal bloodline. And from each of its branches another line was created, Another family brought into existence. What happened to the tree? Young Araxia asked. Her mother replied. Legend has it. It was made into a book. And in that book, on every page, were the names and fates of every single Tamiran that would ever be, from the beginning of time until its very end. Araxia pictures the book of the Yggdrasil. Another myth she'd once believed, a tome from the first and last days of history, and imagines its pages fluttering wildly, being torn from its spine one after another until empty, and she looks, continuing to rise, searching the planet's surface and the great spines as mountain ranges of the leviathans curled all the way around her world in distress, for any signs of it, a branch, its stump, for any indication that what she'd assumed was a legend is actually real, that there is in fact a design to all things. But she finds nothing. It was a long shot anyway. With all they'd known, the zeta bites of information stolen and a multitude of lives and experiences appropriated for their own selfish means, Lixander must have been aware of this, of the divide between legend and reality. However, whatever they'd known as true, 
they listened instead to their fears. To an arbiter of deceit, no more aware of the vast unknown of their universe than of the threats faced by their world in a present, fast becoming an uncertain future. Alexander had known. They had to have known. As Araxia pours over the possibilities, she finds herself feeling suddenly faint, as if it is her page being torn from the book written at the end of time, and she can see it, reaches for it, feels it slip between her fingers, fading like. Araxia awakens some time later floating among the sky isles of Tamira, now full of corpses. She turns. Behind her, the Zona looms closer than ever. The god-beast is silent in its destruction. She can hear only her breath inside her body armour. She thinks to engage her wings, but feels them utterly useless now that she is free of her planet. Tamira. She turns her head to see her once home, now farther away from her than she has ever imagined it being. The full shape of it is clear to her now, a smallish rock hugged tightly by large veins of creatures who'd sought refuge from death but found it anyway. Certainly they never thought to create the life they had. She watches then, as the planet appears to crack and split apart with deafening silence, the god-spawn and Tamir itself splayed open like a fist uncurling, then, being dissected with terrific brutality, hatchet in hand of a being too large for Araxia to even contemplate. The farther she drifts from Tamir that was, and the closer she gets to the Zona, she recalls what Praxis and her mother had taught her, that the Zona ate time as it did worlds, and that the closer one was to the beast itself, the slower time would move. What seemed perhaps hours for Araxia had been days, months, maybe years for the planet itself. She imagines how the people left on the surface have feared for their lives in the short time since her departure. How for her, the shattering of their world had seemed abstracted over a short but surprisingly final segment of time, but for those on the surface, the end has in fact been a campaign of sustained terror and an undoing of everything they knew or had known, of having the limitations of their faith revealed to them only as the bones of the godspawn, visibly finally to all, proved wholly incapable of preventing their end of the protracted death of all they'd believed that preceded the death of all things anyway. Of the deaths of legacies, legends, myths of all types. Their ascent will slow as they join Araxia in time, again heading towards the Zona. She's not sure then, if their lives are fading before her eyes, or the other way round. She will soon be again among her people, the last of the Tamirans, floating through the remains of her world, their history 
and time itself. One final truth she knows as all too flexible, subject to doubt, impossible to control. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Andrews. Andrew, thank you so much indeed. Andrew, your star, thank you. And Margaret, just lovely to hear your voice again. Excellent. Thank you so much. So, listen, he has a plea, mind you, because I haven't put it out for a while. While you're getting ready for Mr. JJ Cameron, I'll do think about support on Patreon. Man, it is, especially because we just took two weeks' holidays, so there's no ad revenue coming in. So it's all down to donations. So please, do you know what I mean? Keep it going. That would be fantastic. Patreon, and if you just want to do like you know, a one-time donation, that would be fantastic as well. But to keep this good ship going, man, week after week, what are we on there? 598. Do the right thing, man. It's only a couple of beers. A eh? couple of beers a month. That's all it is. Do you know what I mean? $5 a month, five quid a month. Fantastic. Five quid. A lot of quid. Right then, let's get into Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news. Jim, sir. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings and gramonatory stipulations, my fragromycetic listeners. And welcome to this July 2019 Science News Update. I'm your host for this questionably crude and vulgar podcast segment, Jim Campanella. You'll be hearing this July podcast segment in early August, I suspect, because Tony told me he would play it when he got back from his vacation. So you should be blessed, cursed, with more than one science podcast segment this month. Lucky you! First story of the evening, cannabis. Well, I was out in Oregon on a family vacation a couple of weeks ago and was told again and again how out of control cannabis use has gotten. I have nieces and nephews who are in high school telling me how cannabis use has gone up to a great degree since the use of the weed has been legalized there for 21-year-olds. I've been told that the drug has been easy to obtain and is running rampant in high schools. Now, mind you, this is all hearsay, but I find this first story about the genetics of cannabis use very interesting. Is there a genetic predisposition to the use of this drug? Maybe this is the answer. Dr. Dite DeMontis from Aarhus University reports in Nature Neuroscience last month that she has found a specific gene that is associated with an increased risk of cannabis abuse. The gene is the source of a nicotine receptor in the brain, and people with low levels of this receptor seem to have an increased risk of cannabis abuse. DeMontis says, quote, We discovered that the disorder was associated with a genetic variant. This variant affects how much of a certain nicotine receptor is formed in the brain. The risk for cannabis use disorder has a strong genetic component, with twin heritability estimates ranging from 
51 to 70%. We performed a genome-wide association study of cannabis use disorder in 2,387 cases and 48,000 controls. We report a genome-wide significant risk locus for cannabis use disorder that replicates in an independent population, unquote. The genetic variant discovered by DeMontis affects how many copies of a specific nicotine receptor is formed. People who have fewer of this receptor in the brain seem to be at greater risk of becoming cannabis abusers. DeMontis and her colleagues used a nationwide Danish cohort to analyze the complete genome of more than 2,000 cannabis abusers and the genome of close to 50,000 control subjects, as she said. The researchers subsequently repeated these findings in an analysis with a further 5,500 cannabis abusers and more than 300,000 control subjects. DeMontis also included genetic data from studies in which researchers examined underlying genetics for cognition, like the ability to complete an education. She found that people with a higher number of genetic variants associated with impaired cognition also have an increased risk of cannabis abuse. Um, so impaired cognition leads to cannabis use? Can't you rephrase this? Could you say, only a fool would take drugs, as Mr. T would say. DeMontis continues with, quote, People who abuse cannabis often do worse in the education system, and our results show that this can be partly explained by genetics. That is to say that people with an abuse problem have more genetic variations in the genome which increase the risk of cannabis abuse, while at the same time negatively affecting their ability to get an education, unquote. Sounds like a seriously vicious cycle to me. The students probably start to abuse cannabis because they're having problems with school, and this makes their grades worse, which leads to more drug use, which leads to more failure in school, etc., 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 Next story, teleportation. Well, quantum teleportation. So we've discussed the concept of quantum teleportation previously. This is where there are two particles that are quantumly entangled and that information from one particle can be instantly transferred to the other no matter what the distance is. Again, because of this weird concept of quantum entanglement, they can affect each other. In the June issue of the journal Communication Physics, Dr. Hideo Kosaka of Yokohama National University and colleagues report teleporting quantum information securely within the confines of a diamond. The study has big implications for quantum information technology, the future of how sensitive information is shared and stored. So why is this important? Kosaka says, quote, Quantum teleportation permits the transfer of quantum information into an otherwise inaccessible space. It also permits the transfer of information into a quantum memory without revealing or destroying the stored quantum information, unquote. The inaccessible space in this case consisted of carbon atoms in a diamond. 
made of linked yet individually contained carbon atoms, a diamond holds the perfect ingredients for quantum teleportation. A carbon atom stores six protons and six neutrons in its nucleus, surrounded by six spinning electrons. As the atoms bond into a diamond, they form a notoriously strong lattice. We all know that diamond is the strongest natural substance there is. Diamonds can have complex defects, though. When a nitrogen atom exists in one of two adjacent vacancies where the carbon atoms should be, this defect is called a nitrogen vacancy center. Surrounded by carbon atoms, the nucleus structure of the nitrogen atom creates what Kosaka calls a nanomagnet. To manipulate an electron in a carbon isotope in that vacancy, Kosaka and his team attached a wire about a quarter of the width of a human hair to the surface of a diamond. They applied a microwave and a radio wave to the wire to build an oscillating magnetic field around the diamond. They shaped the microwave to create the optimal control conditions for the transfer of quantum information within the diamond. Kosaka then used the nitrogen nanomagnet to anchor an electron. Using microwave and radio waves, Kosaka forced the electron to spin to entangle with a carbon nuclear spin. Once the two pieces are entangled, meaning their physical characteristics are so entwined that they can't be described individually, a photon which holds quantum information is applied and the electron absorbs the photon. The absorption allows the polarization state of the photon to be transferred into the carbon, which is then mediated by the entangled electron, demonstrating a teleportation of information at the quantum level. This is how Kosaka describes it in his paper. If you understand that all perfectly, then more power to you. I am a biologist with some background in chemistry, but it is a bit opaque as to exactly what Kosaka means by his explanation. At least it's opaque to me. Kosaka further says, quote, The success of the photon storage in the other node establishes the entanglement between two adjacent nodes. Using a series of quantum repeaters, the process can take individual chunks of information from node to node across a quantum field. Our ultimate goal is to realize scalable quantum repeaters for long-haul quantum communications and distributed quantum computers for large-scale quantum computation and metrology, unquote. Onwards and upwards. From the confusion of quantum physics to the weird and confusing idea of virtual taste? Huh? We are certainly familiar with the idea that vision and hearing can be fooled by virtual computer synthesis. But on the horizon, the other senses will soon be challenged starting with, yes, taste of all strange things. Dr. Carlos Ribeiro, head of the Behavior and Metabolism Lab at the Center for the Unknown in Lisbon, Portugal. This is not the first time, by the way, that we've talked about the Center for the Unknown. But in this case, they are doing work that will blow your mind. 
It was just reported last month in the online journal eLife. So a fly in Ribeiro's lab is starving and has not eaten in days. The fly finds a pile of edible gelatinous goo. And the stuff is basically tasteless. Okay, And the fly ignores it because it's tasteless. But suddenly a green light appears and the fly begins eating. And what tasted like nothing a moment ago is now irresistibly sweet to the fly. The fly, excited by the sudden taste improvement, eats with increased vigor. But its enthusiasm quickly wanes when the green light disappears and the flavor of the food reverts to its original blandness. Pretty bizarre, huh? But what is going on is entirely in the little tiny brain of the fly. Ribeiro explains, says, quote, The fly's experience was very real. It was a virtual taste created by directly manipulating its taste neurons. My team has developed the Optopad, which is a system that creates virtual taste realities in a way that can be flexibly paired with the fly's behavior. The Optopad combines two high-tech elements. The first is optogenetics, a powerful method that uses light to control the activity of neurons and quite literally turn those neurons on and off. For instance, the fly from earlier was briefly enjoying nummy food because its sweet-sensing neurons were optogenetically activated by exposure to green light. The second element of this work is the optopad. This is an additional system previously developed in their lab, and it's called the fly optopad. Ribeiro says, quote, The fly pad uses touchscreen-type technology to monitor the fly's feeding behavior. Just like your phone is able to detect the touch of your finger on the screen, FlyPad is able to detect whenever the fly touches the food, unquote. By combining FlyPad with optogenetics, the researchers were able to overcome one of the main challenges in the field of feeding research, precisely controlling taste sensations. Unlike auditory or visual information, which can be altered instantaneously and independently of the animal's behavior from the outside, Animals only experience taste information when they voluntarily touch the food with their tongues, or proboscis in the case of the fly. Ribeiro further explains, quote, With Octopad, we are constantly monitoring the behavior of the fly to ensure that we optogenetically change the taste of the food precisely when the fly is in contact with it, unquote. The taste that is tasted by the fly is quite real to it. The fly does not know the difference from real tastes. Ribeiro and his team are able to make the fly eat excessively by optogenetically activating sweet-sensing neurons, or make the fly stop eating altogether, regardless of how hungry it is, by optogenetically activating bitter-sensing neurons by changing the wavelength of light from green to red, for example. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, imagine, if you will, a scenario where you are given bland tasting but very healthy food, and your brain is manipulated to believe 
that it tastes nummy beyond belief. That is a fantastic way to improve one's nutrition without compromising taste. This is a wonderful scenario for those of us who have struggled with weight and nutrition for years. This seems kind of obvious. However, Ribeiro's goal is to improve human life in more fundamental ways. He says, quote, The food we eat affects all aspects of our lives, including aging, the ability to reproduce, lifespan, mental state, and mood. Yet, how the brain controls food choice is still a mystery. The Optopad can help us identify the neurons and genes that will have a direct impact on nutrition and hence our well-being in the years to come, unquote. <sighs> well, should I even mention the matrix at this point and coming one step closer to the reality of it? What was it that the character Cypher said in that very first Matrix movie? Do we have a deal, Mr. Reagan? You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? <sighs> Ignorance is bliss. Just a bit chilling, ain't it? Thanks, Dr. Ribeiro. I think. I'm truly not sure what to think of the next story because it seems like another one of those microbiome stories that says our guts control everything. Well, Dr. Alexander Kostick of Harvard University reported this month in the journal Nature Medicine that apparently elite athletes have a better, different, more elite microbiomes than the rest of us schmucks. I guess that means that their poop literally doesn't stink. I'm not quite sure what it means. Previous studies have shown that exercise is linked with changes to athletes' microbiomes, but the effects of these changes aren't known. To investigate whether specific gut bacteria might be linked with athletic performance and recovery, Kostick took daily stool samples from 15 athletes who ran in the 2015 Boston Marathon, and analyzed them to see which bacteria were present. Stool samples from the runners were collected and analyzed every day for a week before the marathon, and then again daily for a week after the marathon. And then you wonder why I'm a plant biologist. Ugh. Anyway, the analytical results were compared with those from fecal samples taken from sedentary individuals. Ha, huh, sedentary. I think that's code for normal people who do not do idiotic things like run marathons. Anyway, Caustic found that a species of bacteria called Vilonella were far more abundant in the runner's poop samples post-marathon than they were pre-marathon and were also more prevalent among runners than among non-runners. He says, quote, 
One of the things that immediately caught our attention was this single organism, Vilonella, that was clearly enriched in abundance immediately after the marathon and the runners. Vilonella is also at higher abundance in marathon runners in general than it is in sedentary individuals, unquote. Again, sedentary equals normal and lazy. The study included an analysis of stool samples from an independent cohort of 87 ultramarathon runners and Olympic trial rowers, both before and after exercise. And the results confirmed the increased abundance of Vilonella post-exercise in them as well. Here's a bit of biology I teach to introductory classes, which you may know. When mammals undergo anaerobic metabolism, that is, they force their muscles to work when there's not enough oxygen, they start to make a toxin called lactic acid instead of actually making much energy, that is, ATPs. Lactic acid is one reason that our muscles ache horrendously after a heavy workout. Well, it turns out that the Vilonella species, which are in such high concentrations in elite athletes, use lactic acid, lactate, as their primary food source, which they metabolize into harmless molecules. So it seems feasible Vilonella-related improvements in exercise performance might be related to the bacterium's ability to remove excess lactic acid so that elite athlete muscles do not start to go south like the rest of us during extreme exercise. Caustic finishes with, quote, Our study is the first to directly demonstrate a strong example of symbiosis between microbes and their human host. This is a really important example of how the microbiome has evolved ways to become this symbiotic presence in the human host. The microbiome is such a powerful metabolic engine. It's very clear. It creates this positive feedback loop. The host is producing something that this particular microbe favors, then in return, the microbe is creating something that benefits the host. Unquote. All right, we're going to finish the evening with a couple of dog stories. First, there's a new study that suggests liking dogs may actually have a genetic component. A new study out of Uppsala University has found that one of the big reasons that dog owners own dogs may literally be found in their blood. Researchers in Sweden studied over 35,000 pairs of twins and discovered that people's propensity to care for canines has a lot more to do with DNA and genetics than we previously thought. The work was performed in the lab of Dr. Patrick Magnusson. It was published in the journal Scientific Reports this month. Dogs were the first domesticated animal and have had a close relationship with humans for at least 30,000 years. Today, dogs are common pets in our society and are considered to increase the well-being and health of their owners. The team compared the genetic makeup of twins using the Swedish Twin Registry, the largest of its kind in the world, with dog ownership. Magnusson says, quote, We were surprised to see that a person's genetic makeup appears to be a significant influence in whether they own a dog. As such, these findings have major implications in several different fields related to the understanding of dog-human interaction throughout history and in modern times. 
Although dogs and other pets are common household members across the globe, little is known about how they impact our daily life and health. Perhaps some people have a higher innate propensity to care for a pet than others, unquote. I know I don't. I'm a cat person. And that's probably simply because I am lazy. Or wait, sedentary, that's the word. I do not want to walk a dog morning, noon, and night. I do not want to constantly baby an animal. I've got kids. I don't want another kid. It just makes your life more complicated. And my life is complicated enough, let me tell you. Cats are awesome because they take care of themselves 90% of the time. You clean the litter box and feed them, and they are quite happy and will kill any unfortunate rodent that wanders into your house. Cats are low maintenance. Dogs are way too high maintenance. The thought of walking a dog in the middle of winter at 7.30 a.m. does not fill me with any kind of joy. Anyway, studying twins is a well-known method used by geneticists for disentangling the influences of environment and genes on our biology and behavior, uh, or nature versus nurture, as it's sometimes called. Because identical twins share their entire genome, and non-identical twins, on average, share only half of the genetic variation, comparisons of the within-pair concordance of dog ownership between groups can reveal whether genetics plays a role in owning a dog. The researchers found concordance rates of dog ownership to be much larger in identical twins than in non-identical ones, supporting the view that genetics indeed plays a major role in the choice of owning a dog. Magnuson states, quote, these kinds of twin studies cannot tell us exactly which genes are involved, but they at least demonstrate for the first time that genetics and environment play about equal roles in determining dog ownership. The next obvious step is to try to identify which genetic variants affect this choice and how they relate to personality traits and other factors like allergy. Decades of archaeological research have helped us construct a better picture of where and when dogs entered into the human world. But modern and ancient genetic data are now allowing us to directly explore why and how. Unquote. And now the second dog story of the night. It appears that because dogs have evolved so close to humans, that there has been a selection process to make them appear more emotional and empathic to us. Raggy, Rushry Rayan, Rhyme Right Rubens? Yeah, Scoob, you're just like humans. So dogs, more than almost any other domesticated species, are desperate for human contact. Seriously, stare at a cat. It will look away. It will not meet your gaze. I've tried this before. Cats are threatened by your staring them directly in the eyes, and they will perceive you as a danger. Dogs, however, begin fighting for our attention when they're as young as four weeks old. It's hard for most people to resist a 
petulant flash of puppy dog eyes. That appears to be how we like it because we have selected for those traits over the last 30,000 years. A paper published last month in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences from the lab of Dr. Julianne Kaminsky of the University of Portsmouth found that dogs' faces are structured for complex expression in a way that wolves aren't, thanks to a special pair of muscles that frame their eyes. These muscles are responsible for that adopt-me look that dogs can pull by raising their inner eyebrows. It's the first biological evidence scientists have found that domesticated dogs might have evolved a specialized ability used expressly to communicate better with humans. For the study, Kaminsky's team looked at two muscles that worked together to widen and open a dog's eyes, causing them to appear bigger, droopier, and objectively cuter. The retractor anguli oculi lateralis muscle and the levator anguli oculi medialis muscle, mercifully shortened to R-A-O-L and L-A-O-M. These muscles form two short straight lines, which connect the ring of muscles around a dog's eye to either end of the brow above. Kaminsky has long been interested in the way dogs make eye contact with humans, and in particular how they move their eyebrows. In 2017, she found that dogs move their eyebrows more often while a human paid attention to them, and less often when they were ignored or given food. That suggested that they could control this movement. As far as humans are concerned, research has also shown that when dogs work these muscles, humans respond more positively, and both man and mutt benefit from a jolt of oxytocin when locked in on each other eye to eye. And this ain't just by chance. Kaminsky hypothesized it's likely that dogs develop their skill for eyebrow manipulation because of their connection to humans. If true, one way to tell would be to look for that same capacity in wolves, because dogs split off from their wolf relatives, specifically gray wolves, as long as about 33,000 years ago. So that studying the two animals is a little like cracking open a four-legged time capsule. And so what's the result? In four gray wolves that Kaminsky looked at, neither muscle was present. Sorry, Jon Snow. Shadow, the dire wolf, will never be as expressive as a chihuahua. In five of the six breeds of dogs the researchers looked at, both muscles were fully formed and strong. By evolutionary standards, the time since dogs and wolves split from each other has been remarkably short for two new facial muscles to have developed. For a species to change that fast, a pretty powerful selection force had to be acting on it. And that's where we come in. As usual, we are the chumps. We have always been the best creature on this planet to manipulate the world around us. And sometimes it's manipulated for good, and sometimes not so good. Humans connect profoundly with animals capable of exaggerating the size and width of their eyes, which makes them look like our own human babies. 
and it hijacks our nurturing instincts. Think of Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny or Scooby-Doo or, for that matter, any beloved cartoon character. They have all been babified by artists in order to help us fall in love with them. Long before animation or even drawing emerged in human conscience, we were unknowingly manipulating dogs to our own ends. Research has already demonstrated that humans prefer pets with more infant-like facial features. Two years ago, Kaminsky showed that dogs who made the facial movements that were read as distinctly human-like were more likely to be selected for adoption from a shelter than those who didn't. We might not have bred dogs for this trait knowingly, but they gained so much from having it that it became a widespread facial feature. Kaminsky states, quote, These muscles evolved during domestication, but almost certainly due to an advantage they gave dogs during interactions with humans that we humans have been all but unaware of. A big theme that's come out again and again in canine cognition and looking at the domestication of dogs is that it seems likely that they really just kind of dove right into our society in the role of being an infant or a small child in a lot of ways. We treat them like babies, and they have thrived by co-opting the existing systems we have for interacting with our young, unquote. Blah. So in short, we have created our own cutesy, baby-like monsters. Ugh. I suppose the dog lovers may not find this as deeply disturbing as I do, but I do find it greatly disconcerting. Well, that's all from me for now. If you love that dog, have a real baby and ignore everything you learned watching Lady and the Tramp, especially about Siamese cats. Remember, that steak on your plate may not be real. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And if we're all lucky boys and girls, we'll hear Jim again this month. Jim, sir, always a pleasure, never a chore. Right then, that is today's show. So glad to be back in the seat on the airwaves there. Thank you very much, Andrew and Margaret and Jim. It is an honour to have you on the show. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly Won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on 
you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out